Paul here is writing in in the book of Colossians. He is communicating here to a church in uh, the city of Colossae. It's in the modern day area of Turkey. Uh, but here, this is a church body that is located in the Lycus Valley and a, a group of people that um, is kind of in relationship with two other churches nearby. There's Laodicea and Hierapolis, which are uh, in the similar region. And, and these churches have been founded uh, by uh, Epaphras. And Paul here is writing. He His letter is uh, written to them out of love and concern about some of the situations that they're experiencing. They're facing these uh, these false teachers called the Gnostics. Uh, and Paul wants wants them to, this church to kind of encounter um, the fullness of Christ. He wants them to see uh, what they have in Christ is complete uh, and that they need not pay attention to uh, the philosophies that are being presented to them to the words that are being given to them by uh, the surrounding culture and the surrounding leaders, the surrounding society. And so Paul writes here, but as he writes, you, you wouldn't know, know this from just his tone because he's, he's just writing here, but he's really in a situation where it's not very fun for him. He is writing this from uh, a Roman prison cell. He's communicating this in uh, a circumstance that is not really a nice place. It's uh, you know, I mean, jail's never nice, <laughs> but it's, it's not really a nice situation, especially in uh, in the first century. But the tone that he writes with is much different than what we would expect to hear out of someone who is a captive, who is a prisoner. Uh, but he writes here with this love and concern, and this is exactly how he opens up uh, the book or this section in, in verse one. He comes with kind of setting the tone. He he says this, "I I want you to know. I want you to understand how great a struggle I have for you. There's this great conflict within me where he's constantly thinking about them, praying for them. He's in agony over this group of people. He's laboring in prayer for them. He he is in the midst of his circumstance, his situation, when he is dealing with difficulties, he is focused on the needs of others. Laboring in prayer, difficult work, especially when you cannot do anything. You have to leave this all in God's hands. But he has this concern for others. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and those and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. His desire is to see these churches flourish, these people hear the word of God, to believe it, to stand in the truth of the gospel. He's focused upon others. And I think as we look at this, you know, it really causes us to ask the question, do we, do we labor in prayer for others? Do we consider them? Or are we only focused upon ourselves, our own needs, the circumstances that we are dealing with? Do we put in the work to lift others up to the Lord? It's one thing to do so when you are with people, uh, 
you know, you're praying for someone in person, but to remember to be faithful to pray. This is what, you know, of course we are called to as God's people. And of course there's a blessing that comes with this. When you, when you pray, there is a blessing that just comes when you intercede for others. You are sowing into God's work. You're getting on the same page with God's heart. And in the midst of that, you are being enriched. You are being strengthened. This is one of the most uh, important things that we can do as Christians, to pray, to pray for others. All right, if you recall, we have uh, the disciples who are being picked up by Jesus to follow him. Jesus goes and he picks a bunch of random dudes who, who are, you know, kind of like the mess-ups of their, of their culture, their society, the outcasts, the outsiders, the tax collector who cheats people, a bunch of fishermen. He's got like all the blue-collar crew. He's got all of these guys, and, and they spend all this time with him. They see Jesus doing all these miracles and, and all this. And, and when it comes down to it, when it comes down to it, in, in Luke chapter 11, we see them make a request of Jesus. And their request isn't, hey, show me how to do that thing with, like, you can multiply the loaves and fish, because, like, that's super helpful as a fisherman. Like, it'd be just nice to be like, hey, like, more fish, done. No, their request isn't that. Their request isn't to be taught how to heal people, but their request is to pray. Lord, teach us to pray, they say. And they do this because they know that this is where Jesus' ministry is powered in his communication with the Father. In knowing and enjoying Jesus, they will then have success. They will have their ultimate uh, fulfillment in life. There's a lot of things that we will ask Jesus for, but a lot of times we won't ask him to teach us to pray more. Right? We're like, oh, I want this, or I want this. Like, but we want to develop this sort of life where we are being faithful to pray. And so this is Paul's work this morning. As he comes into uh, this section in chapter, chapter 2, essentially what Paul is doing here is he's laying out his prayer for this group, for the Colossians. And so we look at his, his prayer this morning. Uh, this, not just his prayer, but, but this section in, in, in three parts. First, we'll look at his prayer. His, his prayer that he, he prays here, we'll dissect that a little bit. Secondly, we will look at a warning that he gives, some danger that he wants to point out. And then lastly, as he directs us to the fullness of Christ. And so we come to look first at Paul's prayer, Picking up in verse 2, Paul writes this. He prays that those who have not seen him face to face, he prays that their hearts would be encouraged and knit together in love. Now, we haven't seen Paul face to face, so I'm going to say, like, we get this. Paul wants us to be encouraged. He wants us to be knit together in love. When you're encouraged, you're strengthened, you're built up. You are put in the place of realizing that you can press on. You are receiving uh, sustenance. And here Paul prays that this group of people, that you and I would receive 
the strength, the sustenance to press on. That we would be strengthened, that we would be confirmed in our decision to know Jesus, to follow Jesus. But more than that, he also recognizes that we we can't do it alone, but he prays for unity. He says that we should be knit together in love, that we should have this unity together. It is then that he quickly moves on and secondly prays that we would have full assurance and understanding. He prays that our hearts would be knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. There is this mystery, we're told. Where do we get the understanding, the knowledge? What is the mystery? We look here at verse 2. Paul wants us to have the fullness. He doesn't want partial revelation. He doesn't want uh, just a little bit. He wants us to have the strengthened, confirmed, encouraged understanding that we know who we belong to. He says that we should reach all the riches of fullness, of full assurance, and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Which is Christ. In whom, he goes on, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So all of these things, this full assurance, understanding, this knowledge, It's all found in Christ. And within Christ is all treasure of wisdom and knowledge. All of these things are are hidden in Christ, we're told. These things can be found in Christ and Christ alone. Now, when he tells us here that we should have these things, that that he prays that we would have full assurance and understanding, that we would discover this mystery that is hidden in Christ. Of course, he's not saying here that this is uh, concealed when he says hidden, but rather this is stored. It's stored up. It is completed, uh, completely found in Christ. It's not uh, made unavailable for us, but rather he is revealing the place where it is stored, deposited. Now, this isn't a new thing for Paul. He has done this throughout several of his letters. Uh, Just a bit earlier in chapter 1 of Colossians 1, in verse 9, Paul writes this, For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with, with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. He often returns to the gospel here to remind us that in Christ is the fullness. Later in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul starts off saying, I Therefore, the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. He's telling us you belong to a new kingdom, a new culture, a new society, and you should walk then within this uh, character of the kingdom, 
that we are called to live in this way, to go after these, this treasure that is hidden in Christ. Now, Paul also goes on in verse 4, and he prays then that we would guard against theological deception. In verse 4, he says this, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Now, the group of people that he's facing here, that the church is dealing with, the Gnostics, they have this mindset uh, where they are saying that they have this understanding that is far surpassing surpassing anything that's found within the pages of the scriptures and that they have this extra wisdom that is in addition to what is found in Christ and that you really have to uh, listen to them. And, And they're coming and trying to attack the church with this. Jesus uh, is good. They're like, yeah, we're cool with Jesus, but also you need to have these other things. It's kind of this Gnostic attitude. Now, Paul describes it this way. He says that they are being tempted to be deluded with plausible arguments. As we look at that word there, plausible, it really just means persuasive speech. It's uh, here... Paul really wants us to see that this is a deceptive type of argument that's aimed at leading this group of people into error. That the Colossians are in danger of uh, being pulled away from the truth of the gospel, led into uh, an alternative view that would lead them away from Christ. And so he writes this... uh, that they would guard against theological deception after he writes that they would be strengthened, that they would be encouraged. Now, part of this is the practical work of the church doing its job to protect one another. We need to be encouraging each other in the faith. This guards against theological deception. I'm sure that you're all familiar with uh, the proverb that tells us that we must sharpen one another. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. In Galatians chapter 6, Paul tells us that we should bear one another's burdens. Sometimes these uh, arguments, these uh, theological attacks are things that we can bear alongside one another. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 2, Paul writes, he says this, I sent Timothy, our brother, and a minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish and encourage you, concerning your faith. So what Paul does in response to some people having a hard time and and dealing with some difficulties, he says, you know, I'm going to send someone out there. And their aim is going to be to encourage you. Their aim is to establish you within the faith. Now, of course, this is not a matter of self-esteem. This is not a matter of coming and encouraging and being like, oh, you, you know, just press on. You can really do it. Just don't give up. It's not that type of, of just really empty encouragement. But rather, the job that we do in encouragement is pointing each other to Christ, reminding each other of the truth of the gospel, that we are adopted, we are accepted, we are loved by God. 
Paul writes this because it's a very practical word for us. Constantly being under attack with these plausible arguments. People constantly trying to persuade you and I, not only uh, individuals personally, but rather uh, the voice of culture, the voice of society telling us that we ought to live one way or another, that we ought to believe one thing or another. But here it is that we are to anchor one another in the truth of the gospel. We are to anchor one another in the historical scriptures that God has given us. We go on in verse 6. Paul continues his prayer. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, he says this. He prays that we would remember the beginning of our faith. And how simple that faith is because it is only in Christ. He says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Now, Paul knows that if they are starting at the beginning of their faith, just as they have become a Christian, when they set their eyes upon Jesus and see how wonderful he is, they see the head of the church, they see his wonderful majesty, they see his amazing sacrifice. When they see these things, the temptation to look elsewhere fades away when you see how amazing Jesus is. And Paul, he instructs them, look, just as you began... As you received Christ Jesus the Lord in that simplicity of looking upon him, seeing his work, so walk in him. Paul says, I want you to focus there continually. All wisdom, all knowledge is found in Christ, in Christ alone. And so Paul, he says, continue to walk with Jesus in the same way that we have received him. In the same way that we've received him. Now, how do we receive him? Well, if we look at verse 7, he tells us. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught. Paul uses two metaphors here. Uh, to bring forth his point, which personally I'm a huge fan of, an agrarian uh, metaphor and an architectural metaphor. It's right up my alley. He uses these two things, that we should be rooted. We began as people who were rooted in him. Of course, it seems as if Paul has in the back of his mind the words of Jesus in John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. There it is, the words of Jesus, 
making the declaration that he is the vine, he is the source of all life. And our job is simply to act as branches, to be there, resting, simply staying connected. We find our life in being rooted in Christ. Secondly, he says that we are built up in him. This is, of course, similar to what we uh, have been looking at in First Peter 2, similar to uh, what was being remarked upon yesterday uh, in Ephesians. But, of course, uh, you know, most importantly, what we were uh, speaking of on church birthday with our, with our church verse here. First Corinthians chapter 3. Starting in verse 10, uh, we find the architectural language. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Paul says, the way that you walk in simplicity, the way that you have received him, is the way you ought to walk in him. It's the simplicity of being connected to the vine, the source of life, but then also building your life upon a solid foundation that is Christ alone. That we, he prays that we should be established in the faith, just as we were taught, of course, uh, when you are being rooted in Christ, when you are being built up in him, this, of course, leads to the establishment of the believer, the Christian coming to maturity. We continue on in Paul's prayer, the last uh, really thing that here he focuses on before he gets to his warning, and he finishes with this, thanksgiving. He prays that we would abound in thanksgiving, he says, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. There's an abundance of thankfulness, an overflowing of gratitude that we are to have when we see Jesus clearly. We know what we've been rescued from. We know what we've been saved from. We know what we've been uh, given, all grace. And when we recognize this rightly, it puts us in a position where we can operate in response with thankfulness, gratitude. These are all acts of worship, of course. Now, Paul is ready to deal directly with these specific errors that are threatening the, this group of Christians uh, in Colossae. And so... He's previously just given them, uh, you know, a prayer, praying that they would guard against theological deception. And now he, he puts forth his warning, his, his instructions to them in verse 8. He says this, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. His warning is this. There are those who are trying to capture you. 
And Paul says, beware. Don't be taken captive. Don't become a prisoner. Now what Paul does is he gives us a list of things that are likely to take us captive. That are likely to pull us into danger. That are to uh, put us in bondage. Here he says this. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Of course here, uh, this idea of philosophy is this love of wisdom. And for Paul, this is more likely pertaining to a specific uh, type of philosophy, but Paul writing to uh, a church that was within the the Greek-speaking world where much Greek philosophy was making its way around here, there is a temptation to be involved with uh, continuing conversations that are uh, not productive, that stand on the basis of uh, human human uh, authority, human emphasis. Now, Paul's warning here is not against all philosophy per se, only against those philosophies that lead them away from Christ. That put them in the position to look to things other than Christ. The pursuit here of wisdom is, is not the problem. Paul is, is not saying like, oh, you know, don't think about anything. He's not saying, take my word for it. Like, you guys don't need to deal with this. You don't need to think through this problem. You don't think, need to think through this situation. That's not what he's getting at, right? Because later in the scriptures, we also see uh, in the book of James, we're told, like, if you lack wisdom, ask God and he'll give you wisdom as much as you, as much as you want. But it seems here that this uh, philosophy is worldly in nature. It's, it's pertaining to something specific. Now, we're also told that uh, we should avoid empty deceit. This would speak to the false teachings that they are being uh, given by these Gnostics who are offering these secret truths that, uh, that stand over the Scriptures. These things are empty. They are without life. They are without promise, Paul points out. They have no effect. They're not successful things to believe in, to try to live out. But both of these things, he said, these philosophies, these empty deceits, are according to human tradition. They're according to the elemental spirits of the world. Now, this word is very similar to a word that Paul uses uh, elsewhere in the book of Ephesians. He says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against uh, principalities and powers. This word is very similar here. Human tradition, the elemental spirits of the world, that this idea is that these are uh, perhaps demonic forces. There are uh, forces with which 
the spiritual realm is trying to lead Christians astray and to lead all people away from Christ. And this is how he finally characterizes it. He says, these things are not according to Christ. These teachings stand opposed to Christ. And what Paul wants them to understand is that you don't need these things because you already have the fullness of Christ. All that is in Christ is already yours. It belongs to you. Right? This is how he transitions, trying to help them understand you're not lacking anything. In verse 9, he says this, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The whole fullness. Paul says, look at Jesus. Look to him. The work's complete. The battle's been won. Everything's done. It's finished. You're already a part of Christ's family. You belong to him. He reminds us of what has already been done for us. Right? And then he transitions. Verse 10, he says, And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. We're complete in Christ. We don't need anything. We don't need to add on to the work of Christ. We don't need to contribute. Everything that he has is given to us. We don't need to come and say, okay, well, I'm going to help you out, Lord, because clearly you don't really know what you're doing. Maybe, you know, what you've done is pretty good, but I'm going to like kind of help you out a little bit. I'm going to try to fix it up a little bit. As most of you know, I work in like really high-end kitchen, uh, you know, photographing the food and working with visuals and imagery. And one of the things that happens there with that is uh, there's many of the dishes that are made, but they'll pull out specific ones that they want me to photograph. Oh, like this is the perfect one. You should you should take the picture of this one. You should uh, use this one for you know the video or whatever you want. To, whatever I'm working on. And you know these are things where, like, they're crazy ingredients from like all over the world on the menu that they change every single day. There's not one ingredient that is repeated twice. Like, one ingredient can be used one time and that's it, and then it's done for the rest of the day. It's, it's insane, high-level, just really immaculate-looking food. And these chefs, they spend all day working on this, putting in all, these effort, all this effort, so it will come to the time when I get there in the evening and I begin to look at these things that I see a, a finished plated dish. And it's just like perfect, just looks amazing. Right, And they have a specific spot where they like me to take the pictures because the lighting's good and we've agreed that like this is a good spot. So it's usually for me at my spot when I get over there and they'll kind of walk me through it. But imagine, imagine that as I was there and I walk in and, uh, you know, walk in there off, off of the, out of my car and coming in there and I was like, okay, um, all right, guys, Where's the food? They put it out there. I'm like, okay, perfect. Looks, looks pretty good. I'm pretty happy with it. And I was like, you know, but I, I've got some things because it might not be, it might not be like, I, I found some really good things along the way. I found some things I, I want to kind of contribute to this. 
you know, here's uh, something that I found. This is a really nice looking uh, pebble. It looks in the shape of a heart. So like, I'm going to just kind of put this here, uh, you know, oh, I've also got, uh, you know, this butterfly wing. That's, that's pretty like, you know, symmetrical and nice. I'm going to put that there. Uh, there's some nice uh, blades of grass that I cut really evenly so I can space them perfectly. I mean, can you imagine, like, not only if I was just coming up in that place with just such crazy ideas like that, but even if I came to the level of, like, well, like, let me see what else you guys got in the back there. Like, maybe I can, I can make something. Can you imagine how much that undermines their work? And they're like, get out of here. Like, like, I worked all day on this. I know exactly what I'm doing. This is planned to perfection. There's ingredients that are brought in from all over the world. There's no, like, I've gone to school for years and years and years. I have, I have all of this. And then you just come in here and you're like, you're going to add these things to my dish? You want to add these things to my work? You, you want to go out there and tell them, oh, next time can you make it a little bit more like this? You want to get back there in the middle of service and handle that? How much does that undermine their work? I'm telling you, you don't want to do that. You'll get yelled at. You, <laughs> it's a bad idea. You come up, you look at it, you're like, great, this is amazing, it's perfect, let's shoot it. But too often, what happens in our lives is we see Christ's finished work and we're like, mm, we're going we're to change some things, okay? Because like, I know that you saved me and I know that you were, you, you've rescued me, but there are some things that I need to do, I need to do to kind of like make it a little bit better. And all we do in that is not do helpful things and add on, but what we do is say, your work is insufficient, Jesus. Your efforts have not been enough. You've not done a great job. Your work isn't complete. You need us to help you. It undermines, it undercuts all that Christ has done. And this is what this group of people were doing to the Christians in Colossae. They were trying to bring this type of, uh, of thought in there. And Paul says, that's not where we're going because his work is so perfect. It's so complete that the fullness of Christ, it dwells within him and he is yours. You are in him. He is in you. And then we switch here to verse 11 and Paul just goes on this amazing ramble rant thing where he's just like, look, like I'm just going to tell you all the great things that Jesus did. I'm just going to tell you all of the amazing things that he's given to you. In verse 11, he says, in him you were also, also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, something that was done without you, without hands, without your work. Secondly, he says, you have been buried with him in baptism. You've been buried with him in baptism. You have gone down. You have died to yourself. You don't have a say anymore. You're completely dead. Right? He reminds us, therefore, that we were dead as he continues in verse 12. We're also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Raised with him through faith. Again, another thing that God has accomplished on our behalf. God, just as God has raised Christ from the dead, so we have been raised with him through faith. Verse 13, God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. We were dead, but God has made us alive together with him. We've not been made alive without him. We can only be made alive through him. And it's only God's work. The dead does not make the dead alive. Only God does. 
More than that, he says that Christ's work is so complete, it is so finished, that it has canceled the record of debt, verse 14, that stood against us. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He puts that record and says, it is complete, it is finished, nothing can be added to it, nothing can, uh, can be put there as an attempt to repay or, uh, or to help in any way. It is so complete. And finally, in the work of the cross, in verse 15, he says, He has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. All those who would have opposed Christ, all those who claim to be rulers and authorities, the, the, the earthly realm, the spiritual realm, all who would oppose God, all who would oppose the work of Christ, he has defeated, triumphed, conquered over all who would oppose Christ. And not only has defeated them, but he has done so in such a way that is so public that it has put shame upon their attempt, shame upon their work that has said, has put in a, a place, a contrast that shows the completeness, the fullness, the great love of God that is shown at the cross through Christ. That is revealed to you and I, that is revealed to the world that Satan is a thief. That he's come to steal, kill, destroy, rob, crush. And that is only Christ who has abundant love for you and I. This is how he combats these lies. He doesn't simply go line by line and say, like, okay, well, like, let's consider your arguments and like where you're coming from. He says, look at look at Jesus. Look at all the things he's done. All the things that that he didn't need you to do, all the things that he's completed on his own. He doesn't need your help. He has finished the work. He doesn't get into this pro and con list. He just said, don't come up here with that. Look at Jesus. Look at how amazing Jesus is. And so Paul reminds them. He reminds them. Of the goodness of Jesus. The fullness of Jesus' work. And when we consider the goodness of Christ, when we consider the fullness of his work, the complete nature of the work of Christ, what it does is it puts within us thanksgiving. It puts thankfulness in our hearts. And so we have to respond. We have to respond in thanksgiving as well. Not simply hearing the truths and saying, okay, now I'm prepared to fight, or hearing the truth and saying, okay, now I've got some good ammo for the future. Because God is not someone that we collect information about. God is someone that we know and enjoy. You might take that information, but that information is there to provoke a response in your heart, that you would see him and that you would want to go to him, that you would know him and draw near to him. We put Christ on display constantly so that we can have a contrast to see that everything else doesn't work. These other things don't satisfy. They don't fulfill us. 
is only Jesus, again and again and again, who can meet the deepest longings of our hearts. It is only Jesus. So Paul gives us his prayer, wanting to see this work completed. We want to see this work completed in our lives. We want to see this work completed in the lives of those that we know. We want others to see that they can be satisfied in Christ and that He is able, He is willing to go to whatever lengths to help people know Him, to help people enjoy Him uh, more fully because He's already made Himself fully available. He will track us down. He will chase us down. He will let us know He's after us. It's our job to see him, to let him in, and to respond. He stands at the door knocking, wanting to come in and dine. Let's let him in. And we'll respond in thanksgiving. Lord, we're thankful for your faithfulness, your kindness to us. We're thankful that all that you have has not been withheld from us, but rather you have given us the fullness of yourself. Lord, you've not even had us come to a place of saying that we will be responsible, but rather you've helped us to see your work more completely. And then you've called us as a result to enjoy you and to know you and to press into life with you. And so, Jesus, we want to do just that this morning. We want to treasure you, to value you above all else, to recognize that you are sovereign over all things, that you rule and reign, that everything is within your hand. And so, Lord, this morning we are so happy, we are so thankful, we are so uh, ready to declare that we are your people, that we belong to you, and that we love you. And so, Lord, inhabit our praises now as we respond to you in thanksgiving. We love you. Amen.